0: Welcome to Under 30, the podcast series by the Youth Partnership that brings the research results, explores trends in young people's lives and themes relevant for youth policy and practice. Young people across Europe are increasingly experiencing challenges to accessing their rights, even more so nowadays in times of COVID-19 pandemic. In this episode we are discussing some of these challenges related with accessing the right to. Free and Peaceful Assembly and Association and Freedom from Discrimination. Our discussion is based on two research papers, recently published by the EU Council of Europe Youth Partnership and developed by Maria Carmen pantea and Dunja Potocnik. You can find the links to these documents in the episode notes. Both papers were developed in preparation for the first review of the Committee of Ministers' Recommendation on Young People's Access to Rights. Enjoy listening! Welcome to our episode. Uh, Today, we are going to talk about young people's access to to rights, to political rights and social rights. We have Maria Carmen and Dunja with us here, who are the authors of uh, two research papers that were published by the partnership. Mm. Can you say a few words about what was the research about and what was the purpose of your research? Maria Carmen, maybe you can start.
1: The study referred to young people's rights to assemble peacefully and it was carried out on behalf of the Youth Partnership. It mapped the relevant publications, documents and reports in preparation of the first review of the Committee of Ministers' recommendation. It was based exclusively on secondary sources without any empirical research being carried out for this purpose alone. Our input is entirely informed by the recent reports, publications
2: and also debates such as the Offenburg talks.
0: Thank you. Dunja, what about your research paper?
2: My research was also on the secondary sources, so on the documents, uh, research studies and online sources. And the aim of this uh, exercise was to, was to see What was the the state-of-the-art or documents that facilitate youth access to rights before 2016 and what are the developments after year 2016, primarily in the area of uh, youth policy?
0: So we have two research papers on young people's access to rights, to different rights. Let's start maybe with freedom of association and peaceful assembly. It's a fundamental human right. Maria Carmen, how do young people exercise it nowadays, especially if we take into account the digitalization and also the, the impact of the COVID 19 pandemic? So, what obstacles do young people face in exercising these rights?
1: Mm-hmm. In general, the literature is concerned with formal organizations and associations, including trade unions, but membership in formally registered and organized groups is only one of the many manifestations of the right to take part in civic life. Other activities and interactions are also expressions of civil society and are very relevant for the young people. And this may include manifestations and protests, situations when an online group can organize a physical public protest or decide to contest state action at international level. Crisis are in general opportunities for undemocratic states to deepen the authoritarian pushback against democracy, and Corona is no exception. The COVID crisis deepened previous limitations in in some states, such as uh, excessive bureaucratization, financial and administrative burden, online surveillance, and so on. And as we all know, the repertoire of restrictions for limiting young people's rights to assemble gained public legitimacy, sometimes during the COVID Indeed, youth participation went online, but there is an overwhelming agreement that the online participation is not a replacement or an alternative to the offline. Research shows that there is no digital space which is self-sufficient and an alternative to the physical space. This is why I always prefer talking about digitalized spaces. The hate speech, for instance, is not a product of a digital space, but a prolongation of the physical one into the online environment and it has implications in the offline spaces as well. So considering the two as totally distinct prevents us from engaging in a necessary discussion on how our societies looks like. And as we know, the COVID crisis brought to the fore the complexity of our civil societies. There is a huge variety among civil society entities with some of them opposing the rights of expression for minority group and upholding extremist views. Research shows that we have anti-Covid protests in Europe's major cities which are prompted by supporters of conspiracy theories, mobilizing young people against research evidence, for instance. So on the one hand, we have activists supporting the freedom of speech and on the other, we have an emerging culture of post-truth politics, appeal to emotions and disconnection from logical argumentation, facts and so on.
3: Thank you, Mia, for this good summary of what you have found out in the research. But what do you think it implies, like what do you think are three things that could be useful for the youth organizations and youth sector to think how to support the organizations in this context? We know from your analysis that there are tactics of control, including financial, so more subtle tactics of control. And what do you think the policymakers
1: should think about helping organizations express themselves in ways that are democratic and meaningful for the societies they are part of is a complex process that requires actions at different levels it requires support from strong organizations that are able to lead the way and to promote examples of resilience but in the same time the small scale grassroots organizations are less able to navigate complex environments so they need so support that is adapted to the particular situation they are experiencing. So we have different countries around in Europe that have different political ecosystems that need to be considered very carefully before considering policy action at a more strategic level. The geopolitical situation of some countries may render some interventions, some situation of support more appropriate in a context but not in another. So we don't speak that much about replicating good practices here. We we rather uh, need to have a closer understanding of the underpinning dynamics that make the civil society sector act in a way or another and to consider all the political strings that are attached in a moment in time. We need actions that are also coming from the governments in supporting the freedom of assembly, for instance, we need the justice to be part of the solution. We need large scale organizations. We need international bodies to be involved. So these are rather structural ways of examining situations than individual good practices, as we usually speak about in
0: youth work. Thank you, Maria Kahneman. Freedom of peaceful assembly and association is one of human rights. Uh, There is a lot of other human rights, and we are talking about access of young people to rights. Dunja, you were writing a lot about other rights, but especially freedom from discrimination. And you said in your paper that the realization of these rights or... The enjoyment of these rights by young people is really far from reality. Why do you think that is happening? What does your research show and what can be done about it?
2: The research data suggests the many experiences of discrimination reported by young people occur in the field of education and employment. So actually, two very crucial areas of youth life. A survey conducted by the European Commission presented the results that suggest that LGTB, IQ youth, and youth from ethnic and racial minorities experience high levels of discrimination, bullying, harassment, violence, and isolation in educational settings, as well as uh, during employment. Respondents aged 15 to 24 are more likely than older group to say they were discriminated against in public space, at a cafe, restaurant, bar, or nightclub, or by school or university personnel. Uh, Also, Special Eurobarometer on Discrimination presented a range of data that provide arguments that young people are actually more sensitized to discrimination and violation of human rights than older citizens. So we have multiple reasons to actually promote and to review implementation of the policy documents. And on the top of everything mentioned, COVID pandemic posed many challenges uh, to exercising youth rights. And why is this so well? As uh, Mia has already said, there are various institutional settings in the European countries and also in the countries of the Council of Europe with different level of support to the youth organizations with a very diverse commitment to promoting youth rights. And it's very important to stress out that young people... Uh, have various manners of dealing with their rights. So in some countries young people are more aware of the rights of the channels to promote and to exercise their rights while in the others they are more used to stay in the back settings.
3: Interestingly
2: both of you
3: talk about access to rights and the realization of rights as a structural issue. So both accessing them, it has to be ensured structurally, widespread. It has to be made available to all groups and particularly young people who might be experiencing discrimination based on uh, intersectionality. But also you say that the solutions come from more structural changes And both of you mentioned that COVID-19 was a factor, the pandemic measures. So I was wondering what your reflections are in terms of this juxtaposition, this putting young people against other age groups and blaming young people that we've seen in some countries or in the media, that they are unruly, that they go out, that they protest, that they don't respect the rules. And on the other hand, young people saying, okay, but we are out of the public debate completely about how the measures and the solutions to even the vaccination approaches will be applied. So what are your reflections in this context, especially now? Is it the right time to do the review of the recommendation or Maybe it is the time in any case, but what do you think we should be looking at more?
2: Yeah, we can notice that there are very different practices when it comes to communicating messages around COVID towards young people in different countries. And I can see that actually majority of the countries uh, don't have very clear strategy how to communicate messages around covid and they don't balance expectations from the young people and expectations from the older generations. And young people very often feel like left alone. So expectations towards them are very high. They have to be supportive towards older generations. They have to obey restrictions and so on. And at the same time, many countries are lacking support services for the young people, Also, digital means of exercising rights are not very widespread in many countries. Access to quality internet is really still an issue, especially for the rural youth. And yes, like Tanya said, this is the right moment to review the recommendation. And we have to stress out the fact that young people should have access to rights no matter of their status, personal traits, and it actually calls for responsibility of actors and youth field to gather insights into how and to what extent this recommendation has been implemented.
1: I would add something that is rather a personal speculation of mine. So with all the implications that may derive from here, I tend to believe that discourses around young people are not politically innocent as they can lay the ground for future political choices or policy measures. And the COVID context shapes and brings young people from the margins closer to the hardcore of policymaking. So on the one hand, we have a narrative on young people being disobedient. We have the social panic coming back again on young people having parties in lockdown. And we have a lot of stigmatization, scapegoating uh, going on. And on the other hand, we have a rhetoric that celebrates young people's efforts during COVID. We have examples of intergenerational solidarity, young people's uh, voluntary actions and grassroots movements that mobilized communities and uh, showed uh, solidarity with the, the elderly, for instance, and all the social costs and the mental health implications. And there is this impression that we might ask young people too much during the COVID. So we have this divide between the narratives and sometimes this can create a ground for having a policy choice or another. If this is the right timing to have the review, I tend to believe that there is always something going on. There is always a crisis of some kind that might justify not having a review or not having the awareness at the policy measures that is needed. We had the previous uh, economic crisis. Now we have the COVID. There will be uh, probably some other motives uh, or situations uh, that can play a role. So I think it is time to do the review. This is the the situation that needs to be part of the review process as it is part of our lives. We need to be mindful of the narratives that are played around uh, young people because they are not politically innocent and they are likely to lay the ground for policy actions.
0: Thank you. We went a bit far from what we actually planned, but I would like to come back a little bit to the research. Maria Carmen, in your paper, you write about different obstacles to enjoying freedom of expression, freedom of peaceful assembly, both evident ones and very subtle. While the first ones are easy to notice, the second ones are not so clear and may not be seen as obstacles to exercising rights. Uh, Can you say a few words about them?
1: In Dikdarek, not all barriers are obvious and easy to unpack, and many are less evident and hard to be classified as legal, administrative or practical. One such barrier is the technocratic language, for instance, the jargon terms that are not accessible to young people without consolidated professional backgrounds. For instance, when information on founding is being presented in A language that is not accessible to young people, or uh, organizations are decapacitated from accessing funds. Cleavages within the youth sector follow with the professional organizations having a competitive advantage over the voluntary grassroots organizations that are youth-led, for instance. Also, the information necessary for applications may be made available upon request and revealed at the last minute. This is one of uh, the less visible barriers that uh, some organizations face. There are also selective invitations to take part in consultation processes, and there are age barriers on participation in certain events and boards. Also, the activists involved in controversial issues may have reduce career opportunities later on. There are also some co-optation processes going on. They refer to neutralizing the organizations by establishing strong ties between the activities, positions, or interests of civil society organizations to those of the state or other important stakeholders. Bribing of key civil society persons in ways that enable organizations to function, but in Ways that deviate from the stated mission is also a less evident strategy that has been documented in various reports. Channeling the income of organizations through a government fund is another subtle tactic of control. The deliberate ambiguity of domestic laws is an important concern which needs to be looked into during the review.
0: Thank you, Maria Carmen. I'm, I will jump a little bit to Dunya. So Pepe, Dunya you You wrote in the uh, conclusions of your analysis uh, and you suggested actually that it's time to shift focus on quality of life for young people. What do you mean by that? Can you explain it a little bit, bit more and how can youth policy focus on that?
2: What I wanted to say is that now in the year 2021, it is not enough anymore just to assure youth access to rights especially during the COVID pandemic when inequalities have increased and exercising many rights have come into question. Such a situation requires a very strong commitment which enables infrastructure, financial and human resources for realization of young people's rights. And the question is actually very simple and is underlined by a principle of mutual support. If the wider society does not support young people, the same young people will not support this society. All of these are actually emphasized by the recommendation on young people's access to rights. And what is missing and should be put more into focus is the principle of establishing a framework for increasing quality of young people's life. Because it's not anymore enough to fulfil the preconditions for youth access to rights as I said, but the access to rights has to lead to higher quality of life and to well-being of young people, respective of their status, background, and personal traits. Nowadays, in Europe, we still have a situation when some young people can fully enjoy freedom of assembly, access to rights, quality education, quality leisure time, to be mobile, to express their voice, while in some other regions and countries, young people are still deprived of all this And even if they can access the rights, uh, these rights can provide them only preconditions to lead a life full of uh, scarcity. We have to put more efforts into investment, into infrastructure, into financial resources, into empowering young people
0: thank you we were talking about different structural barriers but also structural responses that are needed and and so on also other types of responses i think that education is one of them either formal or non-formal and you both write about the role of education there is the research your your research and, and, and other research as well there is youth policy what in your opinion is the role of these three in actually facilitating this access of um, young people to rights.
1: I can start with discussing the dilemma that applies to civic education. I've recently been involved in analysing the qualitative reports of the National Working Groups for the Youth Dialogue. As a coincidence, the goal of this current cycle was space and participation for all, And. One of the cross-cutting issues was who should help young people gain the knowledge and the skills for meaningful uh, participation. According to many participants, youth work may prioritize a non-controversial stance in relation to politics, and there was a wide argument that governmental money is not without strings attached. Youth work also has a limited outreach. This is um, an inevitable part of youth organizations. As you well suggest, schools are indeed places where, at some point in their lives, young people are to be found. And we all agree that civic education is important in facilitating young people's access to rights. However, there are several dilemmas and tensions which still call for consolidated debates. While many young people in schools have classes on civic uh, education or citizenship education, the context often focuses on good citizenship and less on active citizenship. So education systems are not politically neutral and instilling a critical stance among young people within the public schools is sometimes a political risk. And schools of course fear allegations of partisanship and deliberately avoid authentic debates on divisive topics and young people miss that. A long-lasting dilemma refers to the entity able to infuse civic ideas in ways that are free from manipulation and other agendas. Especially in countries with histories of ideological manipulation in schools, civic education is met with reserve. The patriotic education in some member states, for instance, is a very problematic replacement of civic education. A problem is that education systems are very good at adding a new course or module when needs arise. And it is often that external entities, such as youth organizations, step in to fill the void in curricula. However, without democratic principles being incorporated in the entire school life and in the overall curricula, experiential nature of civic education is underused so i would be in favor of of a solution that questions the democratic culture of the school systems in ways that uh, are not additive but rather reforming and this is a, a big adventure indeed but uh, we need to consider it very carefully when we think about uh, civic education in our school systems
0: Thank you. So it's not only about lear- teaching and learning about uh, human rights, but also um, implementing this all uh, school approach to rights.
1: Citizenship is experiential in nature, so we, we need to, to incorporate it in, in our school cultures. Maybe just a,
3: a small anecdote that what you were mentioning, Mia, that, that schools ne- need to practice democracy fully. It is uh, one of the main conclusions of a symposium we did in 2015, when we were talking about young people's participation in a digitalized world. And there was quite a lot of demands from participants or from the youth sector on democratizing education on all levels. And so it seems that civic education or other topics, they even access to rights, because that's our discussion today, in a way, it brings back these issues to the table. Dunya, you wanted to add your perspective on it.
2: Yeah, I wanted to add something on the role of education in uh, promoting youth access to rights. It was already said there are several components in promoting and facilitating youth access to rights through formal and non-formal education. But first of all, young people should be taught uh, from an early age that they have a right to speak for themselves and that their voice matters. They should be enabled for learning by doing, to learn how to exercise their rights, first in their families, then institutions of formal education, and also through non-formal education, which to a large extent contributes to exercising rights in wider community and civic society. On one hand, young people have to be aware of their rights, instruments, and services that enable them to exercise their rights. And on the other hand, they have to be sensitized to the human rights and be able to recognize when someone is discriminated against and when someone's human rights are violated. And uh, when it comes to researchers, especially to the youth researchers, they can help in facilitating youth access to rights through engaging in action driven research, which insights serve as a basis for recommendations towards various stakeholders in the youth field. And last but not least, researchers should strive to conduct research in a manner. That enables cross sector cooperation between researchers, practitioners, and uh, policymakers.
0: Thank you. We have been talking about young people's access to rights. Uh, and also we've been talking about the Council of Europe Committee of Ministers recommendation on young people's access to, to rights. Both your papers were developed with the view of reviewing the recommendation and some of the reasons why this uh, recommendation should be reviewed. You've mentioned in this episode, Tanya, I have the last question to you. How the youth partnership is going to contribute, support this process of the review?
3: So access to rights is a topic that is never off the table. We always want to look into the realities, the lived realities of young people and where there are systemic barriers, where there are barriers that maybe could be supported through more adapted youth work practice or other types of services. And that continues. For example, today we we went on to cover issues of discrimination, issues of shrinking space for civil society. We also didn't exactly have time to go into mental health and well-being of young people. So all these topics are on our uh, research agenda, which is growing by the day, I would say, but that's because the realities of young people are changing uh, much faster. And there are external factors and there are also kind of internal factors. And we will definitely support this by creating such debates. I mean, the papers that Mia and uh, Dunja did were for background, just to understand what documents say and where we are today compared to five years ago. And it's already opening up so many questions. And our purpose is to have this conversation still in policy practice research. It's a starting point. Dunya mentioned that researchers have to engage with the other sides of the youth sector governance, with practitioners, with service providers, with policymakers, with young people themselves. We've been developing quite a lot this angle on making engaging researchers for a specific policy reviews or to support better evidence for policymaking, but also how young people can benefit, can engage, can critically engage with research projects. And we are also developing some support tools for understanding the landscape of knowledge networks across Europe and how to translate messages. So the podcast series is one of our ways to create such conversations and we definitely will continue both to do the actual research through the pool of researchers and to keep the conversations going. The review itself, it's happening this year. We only started last year with the preparation process.
0: Thank you, Tania. So I guess we can expect more to come, especially research to prepare for the review of the recommendation. We were not able to cover all the findings from the research papers we have discussed today but well the time we have for this episode is limited. Our listeners can still access both documents on the partnership website. So that's all for today and I hope you enjoyed this episode and this podcast as the new episode is coming very soon.